Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. Auto-enrollment expansion is coming, though it has been coming for several years. The government has been promising it's coming since the 2017 review, but much like children with homework or reporters on deadlines, promises mean little if you're not prepared to nag relentlessly until they're delivered. And some of the biggest players in the pensions industry have decided auto-enrollment expansion is no exception. Uh, The two questions we're going to ask in our podcast are, what will we see and when will we see it? Next up, the war in Ukraine rumbles on, much to Vladimir Putin's surprise and frustration. While the wheels fall off his trucks and his tanks run out of gas, all the mass legions of global finance are now arraigned against him, not counting those reliant on Russian oil and gas, and pension funds are no exception. Some of the biggest schemes in the UK have joined the fight, metaphorically, I suppose, but given the pensions regulator has felt compelled to issue guidance for concerned trustees, we'll ask what pension schemes should be aware of before they go over the top. And finally, having gone through denial, anger and bargaining and depression, where inflation is concerned, we're now in the fifth or sixth stages of grief. Uh, What must schemes do to accept their loss and rekindle hope in the future, if indeed that is possible? We will aim to find out. I'm Benjamin Mercer, Senior Reporter of Pensions Experts, and I'm joined today by Mary Spencer, partner at LCP, and by Sam Roberts, Director of Investment Consulting at Cartwright. Thank you both very much for joining me. We can kick off in that case with auto-enrollment expansion. Now pensions and the Association of British Insurers are among nine major pensions names calling on the Chancellor Rishi Sunak to follow through with the recommendations listed in the Department of Work and Pensions 2017 review. They, alongside Think Tank Onward, have called for the age threshold to be lowered to 18 and for the lower earnings limit of £6,240 to be scrapped. They want to see the changes, which will supposedly benefit women, the young and low earners, introduced by the middle of the decade. There was a bill put to Parliament by Conservative MP Richard Holden recently, which stopped short, though, of removing the £10,000 earnings trigger, which was called for by Onward. And experts we've spoken to suggests we might not see this imminently. But what our current experts think, I think we'll start with Mary, if that's all right. So take us uh, through this, if you would. We've got the calls. We've had the calls a number of times. Is the government listening to them? And, and when do you think we might see it if they are? So I think, yeah, absolutely, as you say, and, and then there's a big focus on the 2017 review because there's proposals that have been on the table for some time and, and they're fairly well understood. I do think there is willing from the government perspective, but I do think there's a lot that has been higher priority. I don't think that's necessarily surprising, but I also think this needs to take priority at, at some point very soon. I think for me, when we think about auto-enrollment, there's sort of three things that I think we should be trying to strive for. The first one, which is sort of all-encompassing, all is to increase savings, so full stop. The, the second is to, to increase coverage. And the third is to decrease opt-out levels or opt-out rates, if you like. And, and the two proposals set out from, from 2017, re- reducing the age that the auto-enrollment starts ticks box one and box two, I think. So you've got more people in, involved. And of course, that does in itself increase savings overall. And, and removing that threshold, I think, really ticks box one very firmly. I think there are other things that would help with ticking boxes two and three. For example, equalising employer and employee contributions. I think that would probably decrease some of the opt-out levels that we that we currently see potentially thinking about increasing contributions but doing it in a very careful way so we don't see further opt-outs um, and of course there's self-employed which which I know was referred to in in a pensions expert article recently as well um, which currently don't don't get covered by that remit obviously some of those further things will probably take more time thinking and and effort and, and therefore will be so, sort of slower burns but I do think there should be emphasis soon middle of the decade felt to me a little bit slow if I'm honest, 
but I think knowing how these things move that probably is about the earliest we could expect it I don't know Sam what you think yeah I think there's that saying isn't there that don't try and predict an event and its timing just try and go for one or the other and maybe you'll get lucky it seems likely to happen at some point the greater coverage and there's obviously various ways that, that Mary has explained about how that could be done but it's not as simple as that and there's going to be various reasons to push back the timing politically uh, possibly so now, we're going to talk a little bit about inflation shortly, but high inflation, of course, puts pressure on food prices and energy prices, as we know, and that's going to, you know, are people really going to have the money to put into savings or as much as the government would like? Some sort of thing, if we think about the economic situation, you know, we are likely going into possibly a global recession. And is that really the time to introduce forced extra savings on people? Possibly not. I think it will be seen as by some as an extra tax on particularly on the low paid and younger staff. So there'll be some pushback, I imagine, from businesses. And I'm not sure how true this is, but part of the motivation I've read in, in place has been that increasing the contributions through auto enrollment seems to be so that they can be diverted into government infrastructure projects, which, well, if I diplomatically say there's pros and cons of that but they don't always have a good record. And that could put people off saving for life, if you imagine you've got younger people going into that. And the whole thing, if you're having to you know, force people to save more, then that strikes me that it's not attractive enough in the first place. And so maybe there's other things that could be done. Well, I've been looking forward to riding on HS2 for about 20 years and was expecting to continue <laughs> enjoying looking forward to it for another 20 years. Mary, how, how do you, what, what would be your take on that? Obviously, as Sam has mentioned, in theory, it's one thing to say, you know, it would be great to get more people saving, but they do have to have money to save in the first place. And if, you're, if you've got a post-coronavirus economic recovery, which is stalled anyway by events going on with Russia and businesses which are cash-strapped as well, is there not a risk that A, people don't have enough money to save anyway, and B, that businesses literally can't afford to start paying more contributions for more of a workforce, and they might even end up hiring fewer people as a response to a change like this? I mean, I think that th- those sorts of points do need to be thought through carefully, but I suppose I would I would probably just put a word of caution on the, the now isn't a good time, because I'm not sure if you, if you think about it ever is a good time for for some people they will never think it's a good there will always be a reason why it's not a good time to start saving and then they'll get to the day of their retirement and realize they don't have enough to really live in in retirement so i do completely appreciate there are some potential extenuating circumstances going on right now as there have been for for the last few years really but i also think that for people who want to find an excuse there will always be a reason not to to do it um and and so i suppose in a measured way i would be supportive of something happening whether that's a phased approach, but I just think some action needs to start and someone needs to sort of take responsibility for that to move forward or it will never happen, full stop. Okay, in which case, I think we'll move on then. We'll head toward inflation, but we'll take a brief stop over in Ukraine. There are a number of high-profile UK pension schemes have responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine by variously freezing or selling down their exposure to Russian companies and government bonds. Uh, These include Transport for London, the Church of England, NEST, and the University Superannuation Scheme, which isn't itself an emblem of a conflict resolution at the moment. But these have all made moves along these lines. It's prompted the pensions regulator, as we said in the introduction, to issue guidance for trustees uh, who are interested in or concerned about proposals to, uh, or any proposals to change investment decisions based on ongoing events in Russia. And um, Mary, I'll come to you first, if that's all right. So 
what goes into obviously the fiduciary duty can't be done away with, can it, in any of these decisions? So it's surely not enough for a pension scheme or scheme members to lobby trustees to say, well, on moral grounds alone, we're going to look at what Russia has done and say we no longer want any stake in Russian companies. So there must, I'm assuming, be a fiduciary reason for these schemes to have made these decisions. What does a fiduciary concern response look like to what happens in Russia? Is it reputational risk or is it financial as well? You're absolutely right to mention fiduciary duty. And I don't want this to sound like people are trying to sort of play the system, but the the sort of easiest in quote marks way to make a decision as a trustee board is to make it for financially material reasons. So if you you believe that a a certain course of action will be either reduce financially material risk or or be better financially um, for the pension scheme and therefore for the underlying members, whether that's DB or DC, then there's a very obvious reason to go ahead with that decision. Trustees are allowed to make decisions for ethical reasons, but there are a hugely bigger number of hoops to jump through, one of which is to do with the aggregate membership sharing the same view. So if you're a DC scheme and all of your members have written saying, please don't hold anything in Russia, that feels like a relatively strong base from which to to make those decisions. But the much quicker and much easier way of making that decision is to say, well, from a financial perspective, it doesn't make sense to have that exposure. That all becomes a little bit moot when you then look at the markets having effectively frozen themselves, sort of active decisions aside, Russia being taken out of, of indices, those stocks therefore kind of not, be, not being tradable anyway. And in many cases, those values being effectively, for all intents and purposes, written down to zero. So then there isn't a financial drive to remove them, but there's also no financial drive to, to sort of hold them either, if that makes sense. So in a way, that's sort of taken the decision from some of the other pension schemes that didn't weren't in that group of very early movers of extremely large pension schemes with a lot of control over their investments because the arrangements they have will be segregated or achieved via in-house investment teams. Whereas I think trustees who are investing via investment managers that have some element of control over the, the funds themselves, those investment managers will be making decisions for financial reasons. And we're seeing across the market that a lot of them are reducing what was already very little exposure fairly consistently across the board. Sure thing. Of course, the Russian stock market remains closed, doesn't it? There is a, a meme of a glass-fronted cabinet through which you can see all the plates and cutlery have already fallen off the shelf and the only thing that's keeping them up is the fact that the door is shut and when you open the door everything falls apart and smashes which I think is quite a good analogy for the Russian stock market being closed at the moment but is there another sort of I guess a development on that point Sam which is that when the damage gets to a certain extent it ceases to be a decision of whether or not you take your assets out of Russia or you divest from Russian businesses but actually you have no choice but to do that. So it's not even a matter of a moral choice coming into it. It is purely fiduciary because of the damage that's been done to the Russian economy as a whole. Actually, schemes will just have to do this by default. Is, are we at that stage yet? Or is there some damage left to be done before we get to that stage? Well, I think it depends when when those disinvestments can be made, um, which as I say is, you know, could be some time yet. And I agree, in terms of materiality, we're looking at Russia, Ukraine and Belarus as being, you know, what are the direct exposures there? And typically, they are very close to zero. So, uh, you know, might be a quarter of a percent of the total assets in some cases. So we are talking negligible direct exposure. Obviously, there is the potential for indirect exposure, contagion in markets and all of that, which is, of course, much more, much more difficult and, and actually comes back to what is the overall strategy for the scheme? What's your long term plan? What's the framework you've got in place? Um, all those really important questions, which many trustees have, have, of course, been thinking about for many years. And this is just the latest 
event uh, or risk that's happened. Um, and I think going back to those first principles and thinking about strategy and framework is really important because trading or tactical changes in this market, while some do make sense if they're in line with the strategic framework, so for example, guilt yields are going up, maybe there is a chance to act on that. But the reality is we don't, this is a war situation. We do not know what is going on on the ground. There's information on both sides. I don't think anyone truly knows what's going on and and we probably will never find out. So trying to trade on news flow on that basis is, uh, I think, a big no-no. So staying away from that and just getting back to the bigger picture. I think there are some you know, big events like this create turning points in history, turning points in society, turning points in financial markets. And maybe this is another one of those. So there's a lot more talk now about energy security, uh, particularly at the, the national level. And it's, it seems perfectly right that those, to me, that those conversations are going on. Makes it a bit tricky how they fit together with some of the ESG conversations and zero carbon, etc. So obviously those conversations have got some way to go. And also the other big theme in my mind is financial counterparty risk. So that's partly to do with, you could say one example is what's, what's your exposure to Russia? If you've got, uh, you know, if the scheme holds a bond from Gazprom, then yeah, there's some counterparty risk as to whether that's going to be paid or not. But there's also bigger issues. So the financial sanctions that the US has and indeed Europe has come out with, in a way, if you if you read between the lines, essentially saying that those dollars or those euros on those nations' balance sheet, on the central bank balance sheets, are only worth something if they say they are. So for some countries which are your central banks, which are, you know, sort of maybe more at the edges uh, geopolitically, there could be a binary event, which means because the US no longer favours them, the assets they thought they had are now equal zero on their balance sheet. That is quite a mindset change in terms of and, and how it could play out. There's lots of different scenarios about how that could play out. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see about, about that in practice. But there are some big changes going on here um, and some big conversations happening, which could change a lot of things quite quickly. Absolutely. And we could really and probably perhaps arguably should have spent the entire podcast on that topic, even there is so much to unpack about that. But um, on the subject of difficult things, then we can move on to our final topic, which is inflation. I think the consumer price index showed inflation had risen to 5.5% last month. Real estate developers will be glad to learn that Milton Friedman chose to have his ashes scattered as if he'd been buried, his grave would be spinning so fast that most buildings around it would collapse. But investors have been responding, interest rates uh, hedging grew to, I think, 46.5 billion. That's 27% up on, I think, was it last some point last year. I don't recall when that figure was taken from. Inflation hedging, uh, likewise, lifted by 24% to 24 billion. And then most of that activity, I think, took place around October and November last year, which suggests a degree of preparation uh, for subsequent shocks. But um. To what extent were pension schemes prepared for this and how much longer can they bear it? And Sam, I think I'll come to you first on this one. So uh, I've got another couple of stats to throw in there. So you mentioned CPI, and that's, of course, an important measure. But RPI is also still an important measure for a lot of schemes. So over 2021, that was 7.5%. So that's um, be quite difficult to imagine that if you go back a few years, if someone had told you that now. And then if we look at the Bank of England's well, it's, the, it's from the Bank of England, but it's uh, implied inflation over the next five years. It averages out at about 5% a year. 
that's staying relatively high for a period. That's assuming the markets are right, of course. But the also the 5% is quite interesting as well, because for a lot of schemes, that's the pension increase cap they've got on pension in payment. So if inflation goes above that, actually, the pension scheme will still only pay out 5% rather than the higher inflation number. And that is part of the preparation that a lot of schemes have had in place inadvertently for many years and increasingly so because of course schemes are more mature now than they were x number of years ago so they've got more pensioners more people in, in, taking their, those pensions so that's what's been in place already in terms of other things that many schemes have been doing i sort of drop it into three three buckets so the first bucket is direct inflation matching through ldi possibly inflation linked gilts as well but LDI predominantly, um, it's a direct hedge for what the scheme has to pay out. The second bucket would be growth assets, which have a direct link to inflation. So there's not many of these, not easy to get hold of anyway, but long lease property would be one, ground rents might be another, so fairly limited. And then the third bucket is a bit more difficult to conceptualise, but it's harder assets or relatively hard assets that have no direct link to inflation, but are expected to roughly keep their value over, pick your time horizon, so a fairly long time horizon. And so that might, you know, traditionally that's been equities to some extent, but of course they're they're not that hard. You know, obviously uh, there can be share buybacks, there can be new shares issued, property a little bit harder, commodities possibly a little bit harder than equities. And then you get into the traditionally hard asset of gold, and then you get into the new hard asset of Bitcoin. So you've got a bit of a sliding scale there for long-term harder assets. But in between now and then, they could be quite volatile, all of those. So I think for trustees, it's trying to assess how much of each of think those they want, how much inflation protection they want, and work on that basis. Sure. And I think am I right? Things traditionally, if you, if you go into Bitcoin, it's almost a sign of desperation. Would that be fair? <laughs> or is it desperation after you move into Bitcoin because of how volatile it is? I think that's my experience. Depends whether it's volatile up or volatile down. This is true. I've had I've had many moments of joy followed by significant depression with Bitcoin. <laughs> Neri, uh, I come to you on, on on this one then. So obviously, as, as Sam has mentioned, the, the, there's been quite a lot of preparation anyway. You've had the five percent threshold anyway. So pension schemes, and we've seen as well, inflation hedging has been has been up considerably for a long time anyway. Are pension schemes then in a generally in a good place to come through this, even if it, as Sam suggested, might be a relatively long term phenomenon? Or are there any areas of concern that we should be aware of? So, I mean, I think many pension schemes are in a relatively good place. So, I mean, Sam's already talked through the liability matching element of this. And I think generally, as as you've highlighted as well, Benjamin, hedge levels are at a, at a point where most schemes are not too exposed from that from that angle. But from a general inflationary perspective, not that many schemes will have huge allocations to some of that sort of range of assets that Sam mentioned, particularly on the sort of growth side. So those schemes that have taken a much more, I'm going to keep it very simple and I'm going to have equities and bonds, the sort of really traditional approach, which I mean, it's generally worked extremely well for the last well couple of decades, I guess, would would probably be fair and, and don't have so much sort of diversification of different types of assets that are perhaps less well placed in this environment. Those that have already taken a really diversified approach are probably relatively well placed. And, and there are a number of sort of funds out there that specifically mention inflation in the name and they hold a variety of inflation linked, whether that's directly or indirectly inflation linked assets. And of course, those funds look particularly attractive at the at the moment but they've existed for some years so allocations to those sorts of things I think 
could of course be helpful at this point and, and many schemes do have modest allocations in those areas bitcoin's a very interesting one and i think it's a little bit like marmite I, i'm not aware that any many schemes are making significant direct allocations to bitcoin there is a lot of development in that in that market and of course we should widen that to cryptocurrencies because it's not the only one although it is the the most widely heard of and and, and widely used one bitcoin is of course volatile for reasons other than inflation so i think if you're going down that path i think with it with any of these assets it's just important to know that you might be holding it because of its linkage to inflation but clearly there are lots of other things that could influence as there is with any any asset so it's going in kind of eyes open and not just seeing an inflation label and thinking great that ticks that box and and sort of shutting shutting the door on it but i think the the other angle to inflation that perhaps has been a little bit less appreciated to date is the impact it has on on actual members so thinking long term and i suppose DC is the sort of obvious one where on the DB side, as Sam said, often there's inflation linked pension increases to a cap. Um, On the DC side, clearly, that's a slightly different setup. And I think educating DC members about the impact of inflation and making sure there's enough options that, that ought to give you inflation protection on the DC side is perhaps an area that's a bit further behind. Not helped by the fact that many of these inflation linked assets are less liquid in structure. Um, and so actually to to access those sorts of investments on the DC side is is a bit of a newer thing and a bit less widespread. Sure thing. Well, you could always go into Dogecoin and then you're safe from inflation, but not necessarily Elon Musk's Twitter account. So it depends on <laughs> which, which you want your uh, source of risk to be. But uh, that brings us to the close of the principal part of the program. There is just about time, I think, for our always a pensions angle. And Mary, I think you have the topical one for us this week. Yes. Yeah, so I suppose just reflecting on the fact that we had International Women's Day on Tuesday, no doubt everyone saw lots of posts on, on LinkedIn and, and various social media about that. One thing that I really enjoyed uh, reading was a number of colleagues and, and contacts on LinkedIn posting about what they're doing to sort of inspire their children. And of course, any of my colleagues will probably be in the pensions industry. Um, so pensions over tea with little ones, I thought was an aspect of pensions that you don't necessarily hear about every day, but perhaps we should do more. Absolutely. If they're lucky, there may still be a state pension when they grow to old age. Um, <laughs> that's an inspiring conversation. Also one for another time, I suppose. But that brings us into the close of the programme. So thank you both to Mary and to Sam very much for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for sticking with us. And we will be back as ever in two weeks' time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 